This is the second Sunday of Easter, and every second Sunday of Easter we read the gospel from John about Thomas, doubting Thomas. By the way, in the text it says, Thomas, in parenthesis, called the twin, and that's because in Greek he's called Didymus, which means twin. So he had a twin brother somewhere out there, and we don't know anything about him as far as I can tell. The only other Didymus in church life is Didymus the Blind, who lived in the patristic period of Christianity, the first 400 years, and he may have been a heretic, I'm not sure, but there it is. I didn't intend to preach on this, but I want to say a word about the reading from the book of Acts, where we have described uh, the uh, apostles or the, the uh, early Christians, at least in the location uh, that the book of Acts is from, which is from Luke. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. And there, he's talking about what some have described as the primitive communism of the early church. That strikes fear in the hearts of many. Right? Doesn't sound good. But let me explain one way of understanding this particular passage. First of all, we have no evidence historically of the practices that are described being universally observed throughout the early Christian world. I don't remember the dates for the book of Acts, but Luke's gospel was written about 85 uh, AD, and the book of Acts is volume 2. Some think there was a volume 3, and we don't have it. We've lost it, or it's not been discovered yet. In any case, uh, he's describing the way things were, were being handled, that people were selling their property, that all the goods were shared in common, and that everybody looked after everybody. And what is being described here is something that's important. This is not a polemic. I don't want to say that it's a polemic against uh, the old ways, but it is a commentary on the Jewish world, of which Luke, who's a Gentile, was not a part of, saying that because of the Christ event and because of Jesus' teaching and resurrection from the dead, we now have a new way of living. We understand that the world has been transformed, has been recreated. And part of that recreation is the way in which we interact with one another and the way in which we handle our stuff. Because in Luke's gospel, more than any other gospel writer, he is interested in the issues of uh, economic justice and equity, and he has more stories about money and giving uh, than any other of the gospel writers. So he's describing something here that is not constituting a template that should be laid all o over all Christian communities. He's describing a new way of living and one that stands at a critical distance from the old understanding because the, the originators, the, the, the people that came uh, into Christianity, the main faith tradition they came out of into Christianity was Judaism. And so what they're doing is making a commentary about how we now understand something important. All these people who have come in and some of whom are the recipients of the generosity of at least this Christian community who holds all goods in common, is that it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. 
all this stuff is distributed to everybody. And that means the Gentiles, it means the Gentiles are in on this now. That this message about the saving work of Jesus Christ is not just for the original people of the covenant, but that the covenant applies to everyone. And the covenant, by the virtue of Jesus' preaching and teaching, has now been transformed. You've heard me say to you before that we, I just hit me forcibly in the liturgy today when we recite the creed. And so it begins by talking about how Jesus was created in the beginning and all this sort of stuff and was made man, period, and then was crucified for us and we, we say the rest of the creed. So N.T. Wright, one of the great New Testament scholars alive now, says, what about the middle bits? In English, they say bits a lot, you know, a little bit, the bits. The bits, in other words, the Gospels, not what Paul is talking about only, but what about what it says in the Gospels about Jesus' preaching and teaching? And how we understand the way in which we need to relate to the world. To be peacemakers, to be reconcilers, to be transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love. So don't read this from the book of Acts uh, as something that uh, is imposing on people an absolute way to live universally. Although we could certainly in this country use a little bit more generosity in economic and social terms, I have to say. So what I am going to talk about today, because this Sunday all the time is talking about doubting Thomas and how we understand that. And remember, when we come to these biblical texts, we bring three things. We bring the text itself, the Holy Scripture. We bring the tradition with a capital T. And we bring our own human reason and experience. And so we have to ask, what does it mean to be faithful? So I thought something I'd take on, not, not particularly eptly, but just to talk about something that has become very, very significant in our own time in the last several years, and that's the relationship between science and religion. And I think it has a lot to do with how we handle skepticism and uh, what it's for, and to talk a little bit about what that means and then segue into the gospel where we have Thomas and uh, what he did and what it means uh, for us. And also something significant that I'll repeat again in, in a few minutes, and that is, is that in, this is the location in John's gospel where he gives to the apostles the power of the keys, the power to bind and to loose sin. Elsewhere in the Gospels, the keys are given to Peter in one Gospel. And elsewhere in the Gospels, the keys are given to everybody, you and me. So we need to be instruments of forgiveness as we practice the power of the keys, understood uh, perhaps uh, in, a, in a less absolute fashion of binding. And, oh, well, that's it. You're locked up now. You know, the lever gets pulled. <laughs> Right? You don't have to make that sound when you pull the lever, but that's what happens. That's what a lot of people think. So, I was reading around to uh, think about what I was going to say about this issue, 
because uh, you and I are called as Episcopalians to bring the full force and effect of our intellectual powers on the deep things of Christianity. And we're doing this in the face of a number of Christians who believe that um, we, we need to somehow suspend that in a, in a fashion. There is some benefit, by the way, to what they call the second naivete. And that means coming to things with a species of innocence and not cynicism or jadedness when we look at the deep things of Christian faith and belief. So that's also an important thing. So we need to say some things, and I'm going to use Alan Jones, the former dean of Grace Cathedral. He wrote a book called Reimagining Christianity a few years ago when he was still the dean of Grace Cathedral. Uh, Reimagining Christianity, How to Keep Your Faith Without Losing Your Mind. So he says this about Evolution, which is one of the real flashpoints, isn't it, uh, between uh, some Christians and the scientific world, evolution and creation. By the way, Episcopalians have never had any difficulty with that evolution. It is fair to say that uh, accepting evolution is sort of just a, a thing that is true. There's a lot of aspects to evolution that we need to be aware of ultimately, and that's an important thing, just to file that by title. Uh, Alan says, the creationist wants to talk about meaning and gets it confused with science. The evolutionist wants to talk about science and can't, ha can't help sneering at religion. Many biologists seem to think that the theory of evolution, revised or otherwise, denies the possibility of design, design and order, point to the possibility of God. The creationists respond negatively and neither side understands the other. So let me pause before I finish the quote and say something. I've been mentioning this. I have become fascinated with quantum physics. And I have... what. I had to take Algebra 1 three times to pass out of it. I was just <laughs> not for me. Geometry I did better in, and then I gave it up. No trigonometry, no calculus. Fooey. Fooey. But I have become interested in this because this is one of the meeting places for uh, science and religion. There are more quantum physicists who are believers than there are people who are uh, in the life sciences, biology. And one of the spokespersons in quantum physics for this is an Anglican priest named John Polkinghorne, who is also a world-renowned particle physicist. So in his working life, until he was in his 40s, he, he says in this line in mathematics, you're finished by then. You've done your best work in 25 years enough. And he always felt he had a vocation to the priesthood in our tradition, and he became a priest. And so he lectures often now uh, on the relationship between science and religion. And he said, the reason why quantum physicists, some of them, uh, and people in those related fields, mathematics, uh, are some believers is because they see the beautiful order of the universe, of the creation and how it fits. 
that through this process, he says, you know, uh, equi mathematical equations often will not be used for any applied purpose, but beautiful equations have the potential for being used. So if an equation is not beautiful, it probably won't succeed. In any case, uh, Polkinghorne talks about how this is the case, and he said, most of the non-believers and the skeptics are in the, in, the, in the life sciences, and this is because biology is messy. It's messy. And it's very difficult to make sense out of all of this. And so that's part of the reason there's a, a, a uh, clash at present. I, he, Jones goes on to say, I have to confess that until recently I wasn't really aware of the reductionist assumptions of the evolutionist establishment. I'd always had a benign view of scientists, so I'm surprised to find myself thinking that creationists have a point, not a scientific one, but a theological one. Scientists as scientists have no business affirming or denying the purpose in the universe. And people of faith err when they come to scientific conclusions based on creedal or biblical texts. My experience with scientists is that they are not so much arrogant as ignorant of how to play the game of theology. Some think it's a game so silly that it's not worth playing. Yet they cannot help but dabble in the meaning to which science points. One time I uh, heard Stephen Jay Gould, who's not a believer, say that um, he's not a believer, he's an atheist, and the more work he's done in his field, he was a paleontologist and then began to speak rather widely on the subject of evolution. And he's the guy who created something called punctuated equilibrium, the way in which evolution takes place uh, over time. He said, the more I have done this and been in my field, the, the less I believe that the creation or the universe has any purpose at all. I can't see it, that it has any purpose. But that's not my job. That's the job of us to see what the purpose is and why we, we live and grow into it. And we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes the whole idea of coming to believe, which involves internally and in terms of the community of faith, the processes of God at work and how we understand that. And Alan Jones is pointing to a place that I think is important. And what he does when in this quote, in my view, is move us from a, an understanding that many of us have and many people outside of the faith communities, and that is either or. It's either this or it's this, right? And so you and I need to be concerned with both and and to understand how that work. Have you ever been in a circumstance in your life where you have felt yes and no at the same time? Have you ever? Yeah. So you know what it's like to sit in the middle of that ambiguity and uncertainty and anxiety and how you understand what to do or may or not 
depending upon the circumstances. So before I focus on the sort of where the rubber hits the road in this gospel, just to rehearse once again, Jesus appeared. Now he comes through the door. He appears, he's come through the door. Just set that over here. Alan Jones said uh, in a talk I heard him give, he said, you know, I don't know whether I believe in the virgin birth or not and whether you do or not. He said, that's not one of the essentials to Christianity. But he said, I don't want to lose all those pictures. (laughs) Me neither. Some of the most beautiful art that has been created has to do with those things in the biblical text that describe the way in which uh, God is working through people. And looking at some of that is uh, impressive. This is not related to this, but when Nancy and I were in Italy the last time, we went into the French church, which is uh, uh, right near one of the uh, key uh, ecclesiastical haberdashery places uh, in Rome. But that's not why we were there. (laughs) See, I can't get the purple socks or the red socks, which they sell. Right? Graham Greene wrote a whole thing about the the new Monsignor in Spain wanting to get his purple socks and how you could get your purple socks and what to do. So we went into the French church, and it's the church where there's the Caravaggio painting in a side chapel. You have to drop a coin in the slot so the light shines on it of the calling of Matthew. You know? The tax collector, and they're sitting, Jesus is sitting at the table with him. And if my memory serves me correctly, they're all dressed up in, you know, 16th century clothes or something like that. And there's this picture, and the way he paints the light in the situation between. Uh, Matthew and Jesus is amazing, right? Now, applying uh, biblical criticism to this about whether or not that was a true thing is just simply irrelevant. You know? At least in my view, uh, for the most part. So Jesus today gives to the apostles the power to forgive, to bind and loose, but he does something significant as well, and you'll see this other where in the biblical witness, he breathes on them and gives them the spirit. Well, why is that? Because in the ancient world, your breath is, is your life. So I don't know if you've ever been near anybody who's just died, or as they say, expired, but often you'll hear them go, and the breath comes out. So the ancients said, that's the spirit. That's the person. So that's an important thing. And we're going to, in a few weeks, talk about the Holy Spirit coming again. The breath of God. Right? In Hebrew, it's ruach, which means wind. But that's the same word in one sense. So... Jesus comes through the door. Thomas has said when Jesus wasn't there prior to this, he wasn't there when Jesus appeared the first time. And he said to his uh, fellow apostles, unless I see him physically and can touch him and put my 
hands and fingers into his wounds, I won't believe. So Jesus appears, and this time Thomas is here, and he comes up to Thomas, and he said, uh, okay, touch me, put your fingers in it. He does all this. And the famous affirmation, my Lord and my God. So Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. So it has something to do with uh, the process of coming to know the role of faith in the context of the uncertainties and ambiguities of life. Remember this. The opposite of doubt is not faith. It's certainty. And that's what you and I want. We want the answer and we want certainty. And it's very hard to deal with the messy part of life. I'm reading a book now called You Are Not a Gadget by Jaron Lanier. He was one of the founders of virtual reality and the internet. And he's clearly not a believer, but he keeps talking about mystery, about the mystery of da-da. So it's important to say, uh, because we'll encounter this during Eastertide, uh, mystery is not something that's unknowable or only obscure. It is something that is infinitely knowable. And in our prayer and in our meditation and in the liturgy and in our private thinking when we're alone, that's the time where we enter the mystery and we begin to try and make sense uh, out of what things are. And it's very important to do that and to do some thinking. Sometimes people don't like to because they, it brings up stuff, right? The unconscious is unloaded. Right? Some might say. And that's not a comfortable feeling at all. So as you move into the second week of Easter, look at those areas of your life where you may be tempted to lapse into cynicism or outright despair. Know that today's gospel is in the lectionary every year because it is the acknowledgement that all of us must come to terms on a regular basis with doubt and uncertainty and that we shouldn't fear this, but ask God to help us move forward and come to believe. Amen.